this year, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. Pair your impressive skills with our advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So after 36 years, Paramount announced the end of MTV News this week. And as of this week, MTV News existed mostly as a website. But in its televised heyday, it's hard to overemphasize just how much it meant to an entire generation. To talk about what it was like to work at MTV News in its prime, I have some of the legends of that operation. Kurt Loder, Tabitha Soren, and John Norris. I was also hoping to get Sway Calloway and Suchin Pak and a few other people, but we did get three giants. We'll start off with the primary face of MTV News, Kurt Loder. This week, there's been this amazing outpouring for the heyday of MTV News. And for you, as the kind of uh, Walter Cronkite of my generation. I was very surprised. Everybody was very nice. It was, I think a lot of those people are just remembering their own youth and saying, wow, that was a great time because, because I was you know, 15 or something. Uh, a lot of it is that. It's really sweet that people have been so nice about the whole thing. You never stop writing. It feels like at your core, you think of yourself maybe more as a writer than a TV anchor. I don't think I could have a career in television because MTV was just such a special set of circumstances. They had a really good support network there. It was the time, everything involved. And I'm not really a TV person, I don't think. I lack a certain effervescence and is really not present. So yeah, I'm a writer. I feel like I've been writing for a hundred years. You probably felt that too. I think one of the things that was appealing about you as a presence on air is that it never seemed like you were pandering in any way or putting on an effervescence that wasn't there. To the contrary, you seemed no nonsense, real, even stern at times if needed. You didn't put on any fake personality. Was there a push and pull at the beginning when you were on air to be a little cheerier and give us a little more energy, that kind of thing? Television, somebody's always saying more energy. So pretty soon you sound like a weatherman. But I wasn't very good at that. And I don't think, I don't like to be talked to like that if I'm watching somebody on television, like they're and their faux buddy or something. So I try to avoid that. It's not hard if you just don't do it. You said that even in your audition, you were rewriting the copy that they wanted you to read. From the very beginning, you just weren't ready to just read whatever they gave you. No, I think it's better. If you're a writer anyway, always better to weigh your own stuff because who knows who's going to be writing stuff that's in a teleprompter. So yeah, it's probably a snooty way of looking at things, but there it is. I believe I read a story somewhere that one of, one of your early assignments at MTV News was covering the opening night of, I think, the Springsteen Tunnel of Love tour. And that you put into your copy originally a lot of these things like describing he's wearing these kind of boots and everything. Then you realized, oh, wait, this is on television. This isn't Rolling Stone. I don't have to describe all that. Probably. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I think when you, when you start wearing television, I had never been on television before. You had to deal with a whole new reality of what's going on. And it's just a couple of learned skills. It's not 
PhD level stuff you had to take in. Is it true that they also approached David Frick early on? I don't know. Had you ever heard that? I don't know. I, had, <clears throat> I wouldn't be surprised. It, he did a lot of stuff on Sirius XM. Yeah. <laughs> that was a, that, that's a rumor that maybe they wanted both of you or something like that. <laughs> I never heard that, but uh, you never know what's happening behind the scenes. You were not a fan of MTV particularly. You, were, you never wanted to be on TV. When they offered this to you, was there a little bit of a struggle internally? <laughs> I think at the time, I was working at Rolling Stone, and well, everybody that wrote about rock music, as it was called at the time, just had a very down point of view about MTV. So why do you have to see pictures with it? We just listen to music. We're in it for the music. It was like a purity thing. And the idea of having all this silly stuff going on around it just seemed like letting down the tone or something. So I had to move over from that point of view. I remember when they started doing the video music awards, there were people who were angry. The video came first. So why shouldn't it be right. music video awards? <laughs> Say, right. why isn't it rock TV? That was an early thing too. Why is it MTV? No, rock TV. Imagine if it were how stupid that was. Were there moments early on when you realized, oh, I'm actually... I'm finding ways to do this on television that are just about as satisfying as doing it long form in print. Well, eventually, yeah, because it is, it is live. You're dealing with actual people. Sometimes they're talented and funny. So to me, right, playing with people, it's a lot of fun. At the time, it was a lot of fun. There was so much, so much money in the business back then. You could just fly off anywhere you wanted and do all this stuff. It was a great time. I'm not sure it'll ever be back, but something else will. In 1990, with Neil Young's Ragged Glory, that's an example where you really had it all. You both wrote the review for Rolling Stone. A reviewer I remember with the lead was, I guess Neil Young is the king of rock and roll. Great lead. And then not only that, but you went and got to, you interviewed him on MTV for Ragged Glory. So that was a, that's a moment where you really had your cake and ate it too, I would say. Yeah, I don't think Neil was cut out for, I don't think he was a big fan of television at all or technology like that, but he was great live. And he was fun to fool around with. And we had a lot in common because around the same age, we've listened to all the same music. So it's great to deal with people like that who have the same background that you do, pretty much. But you would never think of Neil as being that kind of guy. But he is. It's a lot of fun. Or he was. I haven't seen him in quite a while. What was, what was your sort of journalistic relationship with Madonna, who you spoke to many times over the years? Well, I wouldn't say it was a journalistic relationship. She was very smart <laughs> and fast. And it was... That, at that particular time, she was doing just the most amazing records. You go back and listen to the stuff she recorded in the 80s and the early 90s. Unbelievably great. And not everyone felt that way. But I thought she was terrific. And she was funny to interact with. She was sassy and sometimes maybe nasty. She was a lot of fun to do stuff with. And best of all, she was always somewhere else in the world that you could fly off to and talk to her in like Spain or something. So we loved her very <laughs> it was great. It was great to do so with her because it's great to do so with people whose work that you really genuinely like. I'm jumping ahead, and this is something everyone asks about, but it is stuck in everyone's memory. When you were interviewing Madonna at the VMAs in 1995, and Courtney Love kept jumping in and eventually jumped in on the interview, it's become a legendary little moment. But was it actually irritating for you as a journalist, or were you just knowing that this was an amazing moment? It was a wonderful moment for television. If you were truly going to write this up later, it would have been a terrible moment. But it was wonderful from television. If somebody falls up to the top of a building, it's a wonderful television. It was great. Courtney down here throwing stuff at us. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Throw some more, please. And she and Madonna were acquainted. I'm sure Madonna was a big fan, but 
And they, there was somebody in my ear saying, get her up, get Courtney up here somehow. This isn't going to go over very well. So I pour her to go up and you can see the Madonna and her handlers go, she says, no, don't bring that woman up here. And you interviewed Axel Rose several times, which I bring up mostly because you also interviewed him as late as 1999. And, and since 2001, he's hardly done even one interview, maybe on TV once or twice. Did you enjoy talking to him? Was he able to suppress his volatility <laughs> for the length of a television interview? It's good to talk to somebody who's that all buttoned up and really in control of what they're doing. And he was like that. He's a cool guy. And we did something out at his house in LA once. And I think like the night before, he chased his girlfriend down the street with a backhoe or something. Oh my God. That was an interesting time in the metal world, too. And everybody would just wake up and start slutting Jim Beam and snorting coke off their girlfriend's tummy. But he was really a part of that. I haven't seen him in a long time. It was fun. It was fun to do stuff with. <laughs> you got along really well with Nirvana. And famously, one time they, in a seemingly affectionate way, you were drinking with them after the interview and they, I believe, destroyed your hotel room. I wasn't drinking with that, actually. They said, one of them said, I think Pat Smear, maybe. One of them said, we were talking about something. He said, let's go up to my room and we'll party there. I thought, well, who's going to turn that down? And they, I think it's Chris Novoselic, just started taking pictures, frames off the wall and throwing them across the room. And it was great. <laughs> I was saying, I hope this continues. And nothing to do with it. I was not throwing televisions out the window, but their minder, who was this Scottish guy, I think, afterwards, was so angry at them. And he said, you guys, you're becoming the rock stars you hate. It was like $18,000 worth of damage into this room. It was just, it was a lot of money. Ooh. And I'm glad. We didn't have to pay for it. But that's just one of those things. I'm glad it happened in a way that didn't land me in jail or something. I wonder if that sort of thing happens anymore. I don't know. I don't think a hotel room has been wrecked for the last 20 years. It's like basically once they realized that there wasn't enough fat in the record company industry budget to pay <laughs> for the furniture, they stopped doing it. Uh, Napster killed the hotel wrecking business. But, and then, and I know other people have asked you about this week, but it is for my generation, I remember being, not to reveal my exact age to the audience, but I remember being 20 years old, sitting in front of a television and watching the coverage that you did of the suicide of Kurt Cobain. And it really was, it's hard to explain to people. There was no internet. The other networks weren't covering this like a, it was a situation of extreme gravity because it didn't mean anything to adults, really, to most adults. It was like an on-air wake, and it really was something very unique. First decision was to call me up and wake me up and tell me this awful news. I don't think it was a huge surprise that Kurt Cobain ended his life. He didn't yeah. trying to do that before. But anybody who'd ever seen that band, they were just so rousing. They were so great. The material and he created, music he created was so good. He related, related to it directly. It wasn't like some celebrity died. He was dead. What are you going to do about it? So our producer, Dave Stroll, like you said, we've well, got to say, this is the first time in a lots of people. You can see already that people are very upset. They're gathering out in Seattle and you should cover it. And Dave came from CNN. So he was like a news guy. He wasn't some pop guy. And he knew how to do this. So we have to apply somebody here. We have to do this. We have to set up this crew here. And they did a great job on it over the next couple of days. As the sort of alt-rock era ended, and in 1997, 
I was talking about this with John Norris. As in 1997, when the Spice Girls, Hanson started to take over MTV, and Alternative Nation started to fade, and then quickly Britney Spears, Backstreet Boys, it was a whole different ethos at MTV very quickly. I can't imagine that was your favorite moment. There's always been team pop and team pop acts. A little too old to be in team pop. But I did something with the Spice Girls once. We shot something somewhere. And it was so stupid. It was wonderful. Uh, so you actually, you always want more of that. Bring me stupid stuff. We'll make good <laughs> television out of it. Good television. Not being closely related to good anything else. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's no point in being in this prison so much you can find some fun in it. And then Woodstock 99, which I was there as well. Did anything about what happened at Woodstock 99 surprise you? Was it disillusioning in, other, in any way? It's not like you didn't already have a substantial amount of cynicism about the record industry and perhaps society in general. Well, it was interesting to see this attitude toward the fans and the customers and the people who pay all the expenses so nakedly revealed. People were so badly treated at Woodstock 99. It was just awful. And the contempt for the audience was, they usually don't bring it right out in front, but and there it was. I don't say everybody in the music business has contempt for the audience, but in this particular case, it was pretty shocking. Oh, you were there. Yeah, well, everything from the irresponsibility of, of Fred Durst on stage during the Limp Bizkit set to, to four-hour water bottles. I think even by the terrible standards of festivals now, it was pretty terrible, obviously. Very, very bad. It, was the, it revealed the business of its worst. As the, around the turn of the century, were you still enjoying your on-air role or were you starting to lose some enjoyment in it? Uh, I'm always enjoyable. I was just getting too old to do it. I don't like to see old people on television. That's ages, Kurt. Come on. I don't. I just don't like to see old people on television. And so I pulled out of doing the video of music awards anymore. That was silly to have me there. And it was still fun to do because there's always someone talented and there's always somebody who's making something interesting in music. There's always material to work with. So I like that part of it. I just didn't think I was the right person to be on camera dealing with it. You essentially put a, a ticking clock next to your own job there then, <laughs> I um, mean, basically. If they had wanted to kick me out, they would have done it. And there's not a lot of sentiment involved. But I was very well treated on TV and no regrets about it. But nothing is forever. And if you're going to do something, you need to realize that someday you won't be doing it. And just prepare for that day. You don't want to keep doing the same thing forever. That would be boring. The reason you love something will just evaporate if you keep doing it beyond the natural lifespan of it. It's always good to change up. And times change. You can be doing the same thing you were doing 10 years ago, but the times have changed all around you. And you are no longer the same. And I think you should accept that. When it was over, did you miss it? No, I didn't miss was the bureaucratic part of it. You'd have to get up every day and go into the office and have a morning meeting. I have not had a morning in a couple of decades. If I had, I just never want to be in a position to have a morning to get together with people. I know this would sound strange, but I hate it. Uh, you have to have them if you're going to run something big and complicated in my television. Yes. But I'm glad I'm not doing it. So I don't miss it because I'm not the same person I was then. So if we're doing it now, it wouldn't be the same at all. Just as well, I'm not doing it. And you had a great point, which is the comparison with CBGBs, that by the time CBGBs actually closed, many people had stopped going there years ago. And with MTV News, the thing that you're, they're thinking of with you and Sway and John Norris and Serena Altschul, and that has been gone for a long time. It's this delayed morning. I think people should be aware 
that everything will be ended, including your life, very soon. And just kind of prepared for it. Nothing <laughs> stayed the way it was. Uh, it was a great time, but I know somebody asked and Jim McGuinn of the birds once not long ago, if he would be interested in doing a birds tour, get the band back together. He said, I don't need a Maserati. So it was a great time, but let's leave it there. And he was certainly right about that. You talked a little bit about that, the deep fake you did for uh, Yellow Jackets, the ad where you, you, resumed your, yeah. you resumed your duties for one fake thing that they then de-aged you. All you had to do was go in and record it. You're obviously not the sentimental type. Was it strange to, to go in and fake being young Kurt for a minute? I was probably faking that when I was young. <laughs> no, it was fun. They said, uh, you know, we want to do this thing. It's set in like 1997. We're going to deep fake you. I just thought this is the greatest thing ever. Ah. Thank you so much. You made my day. I want to be deep faked. Tape me. I did something. I read some stuff off a prompter. They took it away to a lab or something. And coming back several weeks later, and there it was. It's incredible technology. I don't think Robert De Niro has to bother doing it anymore because it doesn't do much for him. But <clears throat> it's amazing what can be done. I'm sure we'll find many things with AI as we go forward. They're both amazing and terrifying. Well, I did want to ask about Prince. I know what it's like to interview Prince. I don't know what it was like to interview Prince in the 90s or late 80s and, and also deal with what it was like to... I can only imagine how controlling he was about what was happening with his image on camera and all that. I don't know if that, was, that made it a different experience. Everybody at a certain level, <clears throat> excuse me, showbiz is very touchy about the image on camera. We were doing something with Madonna once and she was it was all set up. The lights were set up. Tech guys had spent hours setting up this perfect shot. She came and looked at it and said, no. I said, redo it. I'm the one that has to look at this fucking thing for the rest of my life. That's how they feel about it. And I would feel that way too. Whatever you shoot today is going to be around forever, especially on the internet. So I don't think Prince was any more so than anyone else aware of that. And I don't blame anybody for feeling that way. It's pretty hard on the tech guys from trying to set it up, but can't do much about that. But he was fine. He's it's just such, there's like an awe of Prince, who's the most amazing guy. We did something once. We were done doing something once that happened with Paisley Park. And at the end, he said, I'm going to have a party. <laughs> and so he got his, his people to send out a message by email to all his followers in the nearby and said, come to Paisley Park and have a party. So he calls the band up and drags them in. Larry Graham playing, but, and they played for a couple of hours. It was just amazing. I think he's one of those people that would just play around the clock if possible. I think he would record around the clock if possible. He just exuded music. He was an amazing person. There aren't many people like that. Even for myself, there's so many people I've interviewed that are now gone. And sometimes it, I think about it, and it's strange to think about it. it. Obviously, that's the case for you as well. You've interviewed tons of people who are no longer with us. They always will be with us online. Yeah. Nothing is gone for good anymore. That's true, too. And then f finally, to jump back to the Rolling Stone days, I think the cover story that you wrote that I come back to the most is probably your 1984 interview with Bob Dylan. And this was just in an absolutely extraordinary time to get Dylan. He was just apparently pulling out of his fundamentalist Christian phase. He had made this secular album, Infidels, that... 
stands up, even though he didn't put some of his best songs on it, as we now know. Um, he had just, I think, done that extraordinary David Letterman show performance. I don't know if you remember where he did Joker Man in this like punk rock version. Yeah. Uh, what, one of the greatest TV performances I've ever seen in my life. But you sat down with him, and, and the story begins, he's playing something on guitar and harmonica, and what it turns out to be is Karma Chameleon <laughs> by Culture Club. <laughs> Bob is always full of surprises. He's another guy that's just, he's always done exactly what he wants to do. And that's unusual in show business too. Usually you have to consult with your lawyers and your managers and stuff. I think Tillman has just always done what he wants to do. And that's not very trendy to come out as like a Christian or something, but he just does it. And I've always admired that about him. He's an incredible guy and he's a perfect representative of the generation that grew up with R&B music and inhaled it all. And it all came out in his music. Everybody thinks that's what so many people identified with him because he was actually one of us, if I can say us. And he fought, he played that stringer. And he's still here. God bless. Yeah. You sat down across from Bob Dylan after in this period when he, he'd gone through all these changes and you started asking him these very direct questions about his religious beliefs, which I must tell you is really to this day, almost all we know <laughs> about what happened with this spiritual transformation he went through because he never really talked about it again. W was he bristling at these questions? Because that's what we don't know from reading it. Or was he eager to kind of take this on directly? If you remember, it was 40 years ago. I don't think eager is a word I would use about mom, but he went along. I think the reason you don't hear stuff like this is people don't ask the questions. See somebody just spit it out. If something you're saying to him about you right now is this thing and I'm going to ask you about it. That's the way you'll listen and answer. How did you come to write Tina Turner's autobiography with her? Because that was, was such a big deal. After many years of wilderness, she had gotten together with this manager, Roger Davis, who was really like a genius about this, an Australian guy. And he said, well, what's happening right now is not what Tina's doing. She'd been doing like Vegas stuff. What's happening is this stuff going on in London. All this, all those bands, like Culture Club and Human League and so what we have to do for you is put you in the middle of that. So Private Dancer, the record just took off. And I was over, I'm sitting in Australia, and forget why, and doing something with her. And I mentioned to Roger, her manager, that there are some people that are going to do like quickie books about her now that she has this album happening. Might be a good idea if you approach someone else about doing a book, perhaps me. And strike, strike first. And they went along with that. And so we traveled around like, Europe with her for a while and did lots of interviews. It was great. I love Tina. I love the Ike and Tina Turner singles that were on Sue Records in the early 1960s. I think that's the best part. She hated those records, but I love them. And they still sound great. I was listening to one of them a couple of months ago. Yeah. I, just a matter of asking. Just ask. <laughs> That's a, listen, that is great advice. Anyway, listen, man, I can't thank you enough. I think people will really enjoy that. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Next up is another name closely associated with MTV News, Tabitha Soren, who these days is a fine art photographer, but was Kurt's co-host on The Weekend Rock and was a driving force behind MTV News' coverage of the 1992 presidential campaign. <laughs> 
Unlike some of the other people at MTV News, you had a hard news background. I did have a hard news background. I had covered elections on local and statewide levels, but I was still only 23. You know, how much background had I really had? I had I started working at CNN when I was 19 as an intern. You do learn through osmosis, but I think I was still a cub reporter for sure. I worked at MTV as a production assistant in 86 and then used MTV as a way to have a summer job. So I worked there periodically throughout my time at NYU. And then I went to Vermont and I worked as a local ABC reporter and I really was not cut out to live in a rural place, (laughs) did not enjoy it. So I came, I called around because I really felt like I was at home in New York and called around to people I knew and asked if they had any freelance work. And MTV News was one of the people that said yes, but I also remember him very specifically saying, Tabitha, we could never put you on air, though. And I was like, fine, you don't go from the 90th market to the number one market. I know that, no problem. So I went there and associate produced it, which means put together clips and made stories in the edit room and wrote scripts. And and I only got that position because somebody got the flu for three weeks. My my opportunities there were all about being around and staying in touch with people and being at the right place at the right time. So at some point I'm in the edit room and Kurt Loader wants to go on vacation and his substitute is John Norris. And John Norris had just been promoted, which made him very happy. But it made Kurt very unhappy that he might not get to go on vacation because there was no substitute. And you didn't want to make Kurt very unhappy because he was the head of the whole enterprise. And so they came into the edit room and they said, you used to read a teleprompter, right? You used to anchor the news. And I said, indeed. And so they had me come that day. And I remember that specifically because I was wearing a very TV unfriendly outfit (laughs) and just sit down and read the teleprompter. And because in Vermont, I had to run my own teleprompter and it was on paper that was taped together. MTV's operation was so slick that it was so easy for me. They had to have somebody. I was in house. I was a woman, which I I think that they liked that. And uh, because they had just had men on camera up until that point. And I could read a teleprompter like nobody's business. That's not how I wanted to spend the rest of my days. But <laughs> that's what they needed at the time. They needed the weekend rock. And, and that's the news for now. More later on MTV News said. Um, yeah. And so I was already doing the reporting work. I wasn't doing any politics. MTV wasn't. So I think this must have all been at the beginning of 91, 90 maybe. And... At some point after that, in the fall of 1991, I went into the news director there, Dave Sorolnik, and suggested that we take politics seriously. They approached the election up until that point, or any presidential election up until that point, with satire. So we, so proposing that we take it seriously and do it straight was unusual, but it was natural for me because that's what I had been doing before. And Dave said, look, if I had somebody who was interested and passionate about covering presidential politics, then we could do that. And I said, well, that would be me. And it went from there. And because it opened up a new area of advertisers, more adult advertisers, 
people with bigger items like AT&T and Ford, I think they got those through Choose or Lose, which was the name of the presidential election coverage. It made everybody happy. And that's why we got buses around the country to register people to vote. It was a real social activism part of it as well. It definitely felt like advocacy journalism. It just wasn't about a particular candidate or the other. It was about helping young people be informed so they can vote for the first time or just encouraging them to actually go to the voting booth and why a couple of votes can matter. You definitely had one of the most 90s, 90s of anybody. You were, you interviewed, (laughs) (laughs) in the space of just a few years, you interviewed Bill Clinton, Tupac. You were in Seattle when Kurt Cobain died and were outside his house when his body was still in there. So you really experienced this decade in a very visceral and unique way. I don't know if you've ever really thought about that. I have not really thought about that. I definitely felt like the voting poster child in the 90s, but there are worse things you could be known for. That's not much notoriety. And I I agree with your assessment, but I think it, it also connects to a larger point that So MTV had a campaign called Choose or Lose and voter registration and actual voting went up. I wish I knew the number, but quite a bit for after that campaign. And you could easily pat yourself on the back that you changed the world. But it wasn't just us because Rock the Votes campaign was also very strong. And then the League of Women Voters did a ton to focus on young people. And then you had a candidate who was very young. But MTV had this beautiful way of having me talk about Madonna's new boyfriend and then switch to the earned income tax credit. And you hooked him in with something about Prince or the Rolling Stones. And then I gave them their medicine. We were also able to make such a big impact because the audience was so huge, which is not to say we were so great. But there were just fewer channels. You couldn't amass. I think that I think the Video Music Awards typically at that time got 80 million viewers. Right. And that's just not, uh, that is not even network territory now. I had more influence than anyone could have now. I think that's right. I don't know anyone who isn't constantly running low on time. You've got to juggle work and the rest of life. Sometimes you just need groceries or drinks or whatever else, and there's zero time to head out and go shopping. There's one way around that, and that's DashPass from DoorDash. I'm definitely a DoorDash customer, and there's always something a little magical about your groceries popping up at your door. And when you want more from delivery, you can get it with DashPass by DoorDash. With DashPass, you get $0 delivery fees and lower service fees on eligible orders, which makes it incredibly easy to save on restaurants, groceries, retail items, and all your local favorites that deliver on DoorDash. And get this, DashPass pays for itself in only two orders on average. So it's worth it right away. And when you sign up, you get special access to exclusive promotions and member-only menu items, all for only $9.99 a month. Get more from delivery for less. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. Use code MUSICNOW24 and get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and more. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. That's 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass with code MUSICNOW24. 
Again, MusicNow24. Subject to change, terms apply. Today, hip-hop dominates pop culture, but it wasn't always like that. And to tell the story of how that changed, I want to take you back to a very special year in rap. 88, it was too much good music. The world was on fire. Fire, yeah. I'm Will Smith. This is Class of 88, my new podcast about the moments, albums, and artists that inspired a sonic revolution and secured 1988 as one of hip-hop's most important years. We'll talk to the people who were there. And most of all, we'll bring you some amazing stories. You know what my biggest memory from that tour is? It was your birthday. Yes, and you brought me to Sade, life-size cardboard cutout. (laughs) This is Class of 88, the story of a year that changed hip-hop. Follow Class of 88 on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In general, we can rock with such a major thing for music fans of that generation. I, I don't know if I can impress upon, I was talking to John Norris about this and just what a big deal it was for young music fans because there was no other place. You could read Rolling Stone, you could read magazines, but as far as an audiovisual medium, there was no other, there was no internet, there was no other place you were getting this information. Did you enjoy the Weekend Rock thing? Kurt, obviously, is a, knowing him, he's a tough customer. He's a smart and grumpy guy. <laughs> so I don't know how that all worked. Yeah, Kurt is exactly the same now, I think. I had lunch with him in New York City with my college-age daughter last summer, and it was he's still the same curmudgeon. I'm still the straight woman. And his skepticism about the world was something wonderful to come into contact with in my 20s. And he taught me about libertarianism. I think that I think he also is an incredible writer has a deep knowledge of English literature, but also the proper form, proper way to write a script. And he really was great at coming back with interviews. And instead of just going into, it's so easy. I'm sure at Rolling Stone is the same thing. There's like this template because all these artists are doing the same thing. The musician, they're going on tour, they're putting out a record and 
we're talking to them. So Curt had this wonderful way of really digesting the stories that you would then go out and tell whoever you were having dinner with, those little nuggets. Somehow he always managed to get those in his piece. They never fell on the cutting room floor, even if they weren't about the release date or the hit single or that sort of stuff. He had a really good storytelling muscle. And it's very easy with the hecticness of camera crews and videotapes and editors and producers and booking agents and then the artists themselves to just not be able to keep your eye on the best narrative. And even for a superficial medium like television, because that that it is not an in-depth Rolling Stone intellectually driven philosophical piece. We rarely have time for that. So working with him, it was just like a dream. And I, <laughs> he's the only person in my life that has ever made me not, he's so grumpy, I come across as happy-go-lucky. <laughs> Any of my friends will tell you I am not. But in contrast to him, it, and it was nice to be that girl, honestly. The other thing is he never, ever acted like I was invading his territory. And why should he? That sounds preposterous to even say it. But having worked at CNN and NBC and ABC, I've seen the kind of zero-sum game that a lot of people in workplaces act on. And that was just not the case. He told me everything I should ask for in my contract. He was just so wow. forthcoming. It was, I, and, that, and that's a gift. Having worked with a zillion other people since then, I see how rare it is. The, a lot of people focus on the sort of on-air wake that Kurt held for Kurt Cobain. I remember that very clearly. I think everyone in my generation does. But at the same time, you were, as I mentioned, on the scene. You just happened to be, I think, you were doing a story, ironically, about heroin addiction in the Northwest, and you got the call that this was happening, and you made your way to the house. It sounds like that was a pretty intense and even emotionally intense experience. Covering the suicide of Kurt Cobain was very stressful and sad, for sure. I think that my least favorite slice of the reporting job is being a vulture. And I definitely felt like one there. That said, our audience was very emotionally wrapped up in what had just happened. And as was the music industry, as was I, if the people around the house were up to talking, if it was therapeutic, I tried to do those interviews. I was also at the morgue and waiting for the coroner's report and those sort of typical local news things, which I knew how to do. It does not require a lot of genius to do that. It's just, do you tell your way around city government? And I tried to be as empathetic as possible because it, when you admire the songwriting of someone so much, it's hard. To, it's just hard to imagine that music is going to go away or we're not going to get more of it. And But of course, anything to do with Nirvana always had a little bit of Courtney Love mixed in, which also like amped things up to a level of stress that she was, I think she came out maybe a couple of times to talk to fans. And I don't know, when you see someone going through that, they are not, they do not they are not composed, but Courtney never started composed. So I just, I felt a little shaky, just worried about 
what I was going to witness. Oh, gosh. Does that mean you were in the crowd when she went out there and read his note? It's hard to, rem- you know, it's been a while and I definitely am aware of that happening. And since I was there, I'm assuming I was there. But oh, my God, maybe I just watched it on MTV. Right. It's hard. I have the like- same thing. False memories are so dangerous with this yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So I can't um, promise you that. Yeah. But even if I wasn't there when she read the thing, she could have popped out. And they were we knew where they were in the house and all of that. Anyway, it just it was not a pleasant assignment. But you just, I have a ability to just go into work mode. You compartmentalize. And I needed to get a piece together. I had to, I was working there actually for NBC. So I had to unwind one assignment or put it on hold while I dealt with that. And anyway, it all worked out. But yeah, I think it was a huge loss. And I was happy I didn't have to do that all the time. I do feel like there is a, that sort of reporting is what, makes up a lot of mainstream news and having the luxury of being able to take a slice of an event that affects an 18 to 24 year old the event or a topic or a subject matter was really lovely at mtv because you could do people don't think of the news there as being deep dives into things but there were times where they would give me 90 minutes to unpack a subject and also even within the a subject like healthcare for young people. Do they have health insurance or abortion rights? You could still all, I didn't have to cover it like everyone else did in its entirety. I had to cover it just for this audience. So if I went, I was going to cover the war in Bosnia, I can do it from an 18 to 24 year old soldier point of view, because the majority of the people serving are MTV's audience and age. And that's a real luxury rather than having to chase whatever the breaking news is that day or some minor event by some politician coming by. I didn't have to think about what the talking points were from either the politicians or the military or whomever. And I think the interview that you've done that keeps resonating in recent years, especially because it was in a documentary, was the, your, it was at least 20 minutes long with Tupac in 1995. I, what what stands out in your memory from that experience? When I went to interview Tupac, I did not really have any idea what to expect. I had seen plenty of footage of him spitting at TV cameras and being in a perp walk or just fairly aggressive behavior toward the media, but also the media hounding this person. So it's not as if I thought he was a maniac or anything. I just thought he's not afraid to express himself. (laughs) (laughs) And when I got there, he was just incredibly warm. He was happy to do the interview. He was, I think he was out on bail. So obviously he's on his best behavior, but nonetheless, I just really felt like he had a great sense about some of the world's biggest problems. Like he he said something along the lines of how much money does someone need, really? And I the the difference between the have and have nots was something that he both experienced both sides of it. And I felt like an interest in leveling out the playing f- field a little bit was very earnest. And that's not something that previously I had heard in his music. I was just, I guess what I'm trying to say is I was surprised at Tupac's range. He could tell me about his first job at the pizza parlor and be coy and funny and be batting his eyes. But then he could also 
start talking about economic inequity. Not every musician, as you well know, can has that kind of range. And finally, there's a clip that I can really relate to where Mariah Carey's publicist is trying to end an interview. <laughs> and and it's, it is classic that you were, I can say as someone who does this kind of interviewers, you're clearly in the right. They didn't give you a warning. But I can also see someone who's interviewed Bill Clinton and Yasser Arafat and Tupac Shakur by that point and just wasn't having it. <laughs> this is what I saw. <laughs> you're right on both counts. But the I would love to elaborate on the first point, which is we were on a boat, if you recall. And if you look at the video, you will see that we are there and it is nighttime. So just think to yourself as a television producer, would you put two, (laughs) an interview subject and an interviewer on a boat at night? You're there because you want the scenic shots of the water and the distance, in our case, New York City. The reason it's nighttime is because that PR person had interrupted me since we started shooting, probably every three minutes, if that. Every time one hair from Mariah was blown out of her face, a stylist would stop it. The Anytime I mentioned anything personal, and I had a personal relationship with Mariah, so I knew a hell of a lot more than I was saying. But anytime I got close to that, because she was still, even though she was divorcing Tommy Batola, she was still on Tommy Batola's label. So the PR lady is her boss is Tommy Batola. So she's interrupting me. It was like it went on. The it went on, and every time, so the sun starts setting. What do you have to do with the lights every time the sun moves, right? So then we got to stop and move the lights. So there was a certain amount of frustration that, yes, had built up. But that one example that you see there, it happened at least 20 times before. So Mariah doesn't like conflict. So I was a little sad that I made her a little uncomfortable. But I also knew she didn't. She totally agreed with me on what was going on. And I just couldn't, these people, the work is, I'm not saying Mariah, interviewing Mariah is hard work, but like probably whatever I did earlier that day, the other 10 stories or whatever, like we're all at work here. Could we just, so when people make my work harder for that many hours, I just was like, no, life is too short. Like you got to go. But w- the funny part was I've I have had conflict with managers and publicists and people like that before, not on camera, but I've had to go. Sometimes I've flown across the country to interview a band and they'll give me the band, but not the lead singer. Little stuff like that. No, that's not going to fly. So in this case, I walked into work after I had gotten mad at the publicist while the cameras were rolling. Let me start again. The day after I got in a fight with the publicist of Mariah Carey on camera, I walked into work and everybody's in their little cubbies and I, everybody had already watched it and they stood (laughs) up and clapped. So like they were living vicariously through my, pushing back on this woman because we deal with it, I don't know, 20 times a week. And there are 
it's just a constant nagging thing. So I felt good about that, that they got to have a little pleasure in me putting someone in their place. I don't want to take much more of your time, but anything you, that this brought up that, that you actually wanted to mention, feel free. No, I think you've covered it. You got the highlights, the things that people talk to me about in restaurants you mentioned. <laughs> That's probably a good gauge, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah. One guy had the whole Tupac interview on his phone. He was like <laughs> waiter somewhere in the... Where was I? Texas. I was in either wow. Houston or Dallas. And he was like... his. He just wanted to sit there and rewatch the whole thing with me. Which, <laughs> it was a long special. I thought that his boss did not like that at all. But... We took a selfie. There's only so many televised and in-depth Tupac interviews. With the Mariah interview, I clearly had conflict with a PR person who I did not expect to have any interaction with whatsoever. But then another time you walk into <laughs> Suge Knight's record company and you're frisked and all the equipment is unpacked and looking for, I don't know, weapons maybe. And when you're walking into the recording studio that everyone's sitting there, they're all armed. And yet, even under those circumstances, with somebody I've never met who happened to be Tupac, we just got on like gangbusters. The chemistry was there for whatever reason. I'm not a big hip hop fan, but I liked his mind. And I don't know what he liked about me, but Sometimes it's inexplicable. You just happen to have a good time talking to each other. And I also feel blessed that Kurt and I had that very easy relationship and continue to. Thanks once more to Tabitha Soren. Next up is a name that anyone who watched MTV in the 90s or 2000s knows very well, and that's John Norris, who did so much for MTV News and is still working as a music journalist and still keeping up with new music as much as anyone I know. John, you started at MTV as an intern, right? I wanted to get in there somehow because I was a fan of the channel. And I was a journalism major at NYU. I had two internships, one in news. But then before that was as a PA, kind of writer PA. I was an intern, so it was free labor, working on the Top 20 Video Countdown, which was hosted by Mark Goodman, I think, initially, and Adam Curry, Carolyn Heldman, I believe semester of that. And then I switched over to news and the news operation was so small at the time that they were just, it was all hands on deck. I was there as a intern and then got the writing job. Kurt was there. Kurt had just come in like a year before, but they, they realized that Kurt needed, they needed to have an alternate because he was going to travel. And I was just in the right place at the right time kind of thing. And at some point as a kid, I guess you were an actor? Mainly theater, a little bit of TV. I grew up in Houston. And my brother and I were both like kid actors. My brother is a big playwright now. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, he's won a Tony and Pulitzer. And I mean, he's big. He's serious. But anyway, so we were like kid actors. And so I was comfortable on camera. But I hadn't really done that much TV. Well, in the in-house stuff at NYU I had done. But I hadn't done that much TV anchoring or reporting. But I think they just felt I didn't have much of a learning curve when it came to being on camera. So they were like, yeah, we'll just use him. And if we find someone better later on, we'll get them. And they did, and plenty of people came along in pretty short order. Tabitha, I think, was the first other anchor to come along. And then Allison soon after that. And they just grew from there. 
to use a cliched phrase, you did have a front row seat to a lot of what are now historical musical moments. What stands out in your mind? And not to get dark, but there was a lot of death that I had to cover, you know, over the years. We, I was in LA when Biggie got killed. I was, I had to go out to Vegas to do a sort of reenact timeline segment of when Tupac, where and when Tupac got killed. I had to report on Aaliyah's death, Left Eye, a lot of, a lot. I've been out, I've, we had a different producer, writer, covering the Source Awards, had been at the Source Awards. I had already gone to bed, but they woke me up and said, you need, we need to go over to Cedar sinai because Big has been admitted, and we stood vigil. I can't remember when he, how long it took for him to be pronounced dead, but it was, we were there for all the night, and then I don't think it, I don't remember if it was official that next morning or not, but yeah, it was horrible. I, I met Pac a couple times. I'd never done a big sit-down with him, but I'd interviewed him a couple times, once on the set of the movie Bullet that he did with Mickey Work. And he was like super, super outgoing and just chatty and friendly. And then if you remember Snoop Dogg's murder trial, murder was a case. We had a satellite truck outside the LA courthouse, like awaiting that verdict for a couple weeks, which can't have been cheap. And, uh, and Tupac was there one day to watch, just watch the proceedings. And we grabbed him, tried to grab him when he was coming out. He was in no mood, just not happy with what was happening to I guess just new, but I assume. So that encounter wasn't so great. Not the only, by the way, courthouse stakeout that I did as a MTV News correspondent. Much later in my time there, I was up in Santa Maria, California for about two weeks outside a certain courthouse awaiting the verdict on a gentleman by the name of Michael Jackson. If you remember that when he was arraigned, he stood on the top of his SUV and Wave to the fans. It was a. It couldn't have been like a weirder, and that was the arraignment. But then I was there for the trial itself too, and the collection of Michael stands that brought out that the doves being released when he got the not guilty verdict. It was insane. It's easy to over romanticize the '90s and also to perhaps overestimate the degree to which everything was progressive back then. The way a lot of people saw it was as an antidote to what had come before, which was some of the really over-the-top, almost cartoonish hair metal of the of, that had dominated the five to ten years prior. But and not only hair metal, and I don't want to be too dismissive of metal and all that, but the thing about the alt-rock, quote-unquote, revolution and grunge, if you want to use that, if we want to use that term, whatever, is that it was certainly a huge defining quality of that era and I think by a lot of people seen as this more authentic corrective to all the phoniness that came before. And I'll give them that on a musical side, but I will say that, and I wasn't a rainbow flag waving LGBT person at the time, but I wasn't closeted either. And I will say that in our, I think, 2020s inclination to romanticize the 90s, and talk about how great things were and how much more evolved and real, quote unquote, they were. We forget the fact that toxic masculinity was alive and well in the times of Jane's addiction and in the times of, of a lot of grunge, too. And I would make, I would set Nirvana as a notable exception to what I'm describing, by the way. One of the many reasons losing Kurt so early was Cobain, was a tragedy, is that he, as a human being, 
And I only met the man once. I certainly never interviewed him. That was Kurt Loder's domain. And Nirvana hardly did any interviews. But he, he just as a human being, you could he was clearly a more evolved person. I, I hate to make things all from my point of view. To see a, art, a band like Beastie Boys, who, i got to tell you, the first few times I had to sit down with them, it just felt, I completely had the feeling that I'd walk out of the room and they'd be like, part of my language, they'd be like, faggot. And yeah, 100%. And to say nothing of the Limp Biscuits of the world. I, same situation, but a few years earlier with Beasties. But to see the evolution, and I might, I would say that Yelk probably spurred that evolution. I think that his whole embrace of Tibet as a cause Almost in real time, you could see it. And no, I don't see them very often, but the last time I saw, I saw them was, I saw Ad-Rock actually was, I don't know, six or eight years ago at a thing I did at Joe's Pub with Kathleen, actually. He and Kathleen were both there together and he could not have been nicer. In the later years of me talking to them, they were like, could not have been, could not have been nicer. And it's all, also it's all context. Like I, I talked to a lot of bros in my time there and in hip-hop and in, in pop-punk and whatnot. Hey, you get certain vibes from some people and you still get certain vibes from other people. And I just rolled with the punches, but I, and I'm not, as I said earlier, I'm not an easy to anger, militant-minded type, really. I had or had a fairly thick skin when it came to some of that stuff. But, but yeah, I think, I guess all I, the only point I really wanted to make is that I think that sometimes when we remember the 90s, we forget other things about the 90s, which had, it still had some ways to go on some fronts. It's interesting. You interviewed George Michael a bunch of times, and there's an interview with him in 1998 where he still wasn't comfortable coming out. I think that's a sign of how repressed those times really were in some ways. In George's case, now you're talking about somebody that I, I can't say I, we were good friends, but we knew each other socially as well as me interviewing him, it was a long process, and we all, everyone knows the famous Be Beverly Hills bathroom incident, which is what he, in retrospect, said I was probably looking to get caught, because I knew that if it was up to me to have the guts to do it myself, I don't know if I would have ever done it. As embarrassing as it was for him, the embarrassment was, I think, fairly fleeting, and man, we did this special with him, and it was... One of the first interviews he did after that happened, and it was like, he was like another person. It was like a, this massive weight had been lifted off his shoulders, and it was so beautiful to see. And I, the way George's life, I describe it as having faded to black, really, it breaks my heart in some ways, because by the time he died, I hadn't talked to him in a long time. And you hear all this anecdotal stuff, and you never know how much of it's true about I mean, there were there's some that was absolutely true. He had a serious bout with pneumonia and barely survived that. He's a special person. There's a lot of special people I've met artist-wise. I met over the years, but not too many who's getting back to the homophobia and what it meant to be LGBTQ back in that time. And we're all on our own path anyway, right? It was, I think, eight years maybe after George was out under the 2000s that Lance Bass felt comfortable to come out. That was, if I'm not mistaken, that was after NSYNC were already done. The shift that happened in 1997, MTV kind of moved on from the alternative era and 
started focusing on Spice Girls and Hanson, and then pretty soon it was Britney Spears and Sync the Backstreet Boys. And the truth is I love that stuff personally, and it seemed like you kind of did too. It didn't seem like you looked down on the chance to talk to these people. It seemed like you were enjoying yourself. I always tell people that what part of who I was to the MTV viewers was had something to do with what Kurt wouldn't do. Kurt wasn't going to boy bands, and Kurt at that point wasn't really going to do former Disney stars. You know what I mean? No apologies for liking pop music. At the same time that I was listening to Backstreet Boys, though, I would go home and listen to Neutral Milk Hotel and and or Wu Tang Clan, and I, I and I had an absolute blast being on the road. I was on the road with Wu Tang and Rage. I love Rage Against the Machine. I'm probably one of my favorite top ten bands of all time. I'm just a real mix of, of uh, musical taste. But I absolutely enjoyed talking to all the pop dudes of that era. And I think they appreciated having someone who had been there a while at that point, by 98, 99, being genuinely interested in talking to them. When you're around real pop that is extremely, feels handled. I'm sure you've been with pop artists who feel extremely handled. Back then, I had to take what was the situation that was given to me. Now, if I was put in a situation with some pop superstar who's extremely managed and there were 15 cooks in the room, but I think I'd be just like, guys, it's just fucking not worth it. I'm not out to hurt them. I'm not out to, I'm not a muckraker or whatever. So in 1999, you went down to Kentwood, Louisiana and interviewed Britney Spears at her family home. What stands out in your mind from that interview? And was there anything that even hinted at some of the dark stuff to come? When the Britney doc dropped a couple of years ago and the whole conversation picked up steam again and sort of a reevaluation of Britney and what happened to her and the way she was treated by the media, which was, I had to, I watched that show and I was like, I forgot how bad it was. And I think, I think we always did right by her, but I don't know, maybe she feels like she had some bad experience with NTV as well. I did get to do the first ever MTV interview with her which was in her childhood home in Kentwood, surrounded in her bedroom, surrounded by her doll collection, which is not why I'm talking about it now. Sounds like I'm an absolute creep, but I was, I'm not, I mean, it's just like, it was cute. And it was, and it was sweet. And she was, could not have been nicer. And the whole family was very excited to have us there. Her just being super wide eyed and, and unable to believe that this was all happening. The family being super proud, Brian, her brother, seeming like a real proud brother. The whole family was there, not in the interview, but Jamie Lynn was there. It was subsequently, they moved to a much bigger house, like a compound, I think. And I don't know if it was in Kentwood or near there, but you just think about all the water under the bridge in so many ways. And we could go in so many directions, talking about her and her life and family and et cetera, what's happened since then. And it's just, it's really nuts. I wasn't really witness too much that felt like super objectifying or misogynistic or it's i don't i didn't sense any of that really like i i know i was at i believe that coincided with when she was touring within sync as her opener or vice versa but it might have been because it was very early it might have been just not that long after baby one more time it had the single and the video had come out it might have been a little too early for me to have really been witness to a lot of that sort of nasty treatment that she got a few years later. I know that Kurt kind of took responsibility for interviewing Madonna over the years, but what were your interactions with her? 
Well, now with her, see, now that's an interesting person because the vast majority of the interviews from, I guess, Like a Virgin all the way through the early 2000s were done by Kurt Loder. They almost became like a comedy team for about a decade. I actually met her when I just happened to get invited to the opening party for the Blonde Ambition tour, uh, the documentary for the film. And we were at, I think it was at Area, the club, former downtown club area. And she was in a VIP section, sitting with her dancers. And so she calls me, she waves me over. She's, hey, you. She's, hey, you. So I, it was 90 because I'd been on the air already doing news for 10 to the hour breaks. Long enough for her to notice me anyway. And she called her, she goes, hey, come here. And I'm like looking behind me like, were you talking to me? And she goes, yeah, I should come over. And I said, what's up? And she goes, we just wanted to say, we think you're really cool. We love you. We love the way you dress. And I said, oh, thank you. To be honest, my, my boss thinks I dress a little bit gay. And she's like, what? And she's like, that's what we like. And tell your boss that he can kiss my gay ass. <laughs> so I was like, I'll be sure to relay that message to him. But that kind of sort of, I guess, set our relationship in motion from there on. I'm a little bit shocked to hear that executives would be so comfortable telling you something was, quote unquote, too gay. Oh, yeah. No, I, look, no one ever said to me, don't wear that. Like, I, and that <laughs> is my clown show of wardrobe archives over 18 years will attest. Dude, somebody once when I was, it was like a couple of years before I left, one of our more enterprising editors put together a reel of my outfits, of my looks from the VMA red carpets over 18 years or whatever it was, or fifth, fifth, maybe six, at the time, 16 years. And I had, for, I had for even forgotten some of them. I, I was like, because I had a, from the majority of the 90s, I had a very progressive boss, Jane Sangster, shout out to Jane, and shout out also so to her successor, Ocean McAdams. Both of them were the hands-on producers, executive producers of MTV News. And then their boss was Dave Cerulnik, who was a legend, really, at MTV and beyond. And uh, But Jane was extreme. Jane, in fact, encouraged my my wacky sartorial choices. And man, I, 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 there was, and then they had to drag us to Miami for the VMAs. And I think it was, oh, whatever year Katrina hit. We were, Katrina hit, actually, while we were in Miami, it made a pass through Southern Florida before it went through the Gulf and went to New Orleans. And so we we actually got the first brunt of Katrina, I think those five or four, whatever Hurricane Katrina was. Yeah. So I, and I don't deal with the heat well. And so we were on the, and man, it was not a tree in sight. We would, I had to, and I was on the red carpet every year. They would never let me graduate to home base with Kurt because that was the domain of Kurt and Whoever our lead female anchor was, whether it was Tabitha or later Serena or later Suchin, I was always, and they would always say, oh, but John, you're so good on the red carpet. You're, you think you're on your feet. You're great there. We need you there. And I'm like, okay, good. And so I, but that in Miami, outside the arena, the American Airlines arena, I believe it was boom. Just in August, are you kidding me? And so I, so by the second year we did it, I'm, I, I don't know what I'm going to wear, but it's got to be next to nothing. I'm not kidding you. At this point, I'm like, fuck it, with worrying about what people think of me. I wore a backless shirt on the red carpet. And and Trey from Green Day, Trey comes over to me eventually, Green Day make their way over. And he, he I love that guy. because See, this is a good example of somebody 
that could joke around with me and never in a million years I think they had a hateful bone or a just a homophobic bone in their body. And he came over and he goes, he just says quietly to me, he goes, Johnny Norris, I said, when we showed up, I turned to Billy Joe and said, John has never looked gayer. And I'm like, thank you, Trey. It's good to see you too. And, and, but whatever, it's, I, those were all great, good times. I don't, as I said, I wasn't someone to be a big activist, but I also didn't really hide who I was either. In the 2000s, MTV obviously started focusing more on reality television and saw great success with that. But not long after, it seemed to sort of go into a death spiral of relevance. What was it like to be there through all that? There are people who would say and did say to me at the time, including a couple colleagues, that in retrospect, maybe I should have read the writing on the wall that from 2000, I'd say, two until my eventual release at the end of 08, that they were using me less and less. And I also, my tolerance to just do whatever was asked of me, no matter how sometimes silly I thought it was. And we did enter a little bit more of a silly season, I think, with the news. As reality TV and scripted shows took over the channel, news was at least partly expected to support that identity of the channel with ancillary and complementary programming. And I just wasn't really, I just wasn't really interested in doing that. And I think they still saw me as valuable enough to keep me on for another five, six years. But it was, we both had the times and there were times when I felt not irrelevant, but that but at the same time, I felt like, what else am I going to do? Not that I wasn't, didn't think I was capable of doing other things. It's that I didn't necessarily want to. And this goes back to my, this goes back to my people saying that I ne perhaps needed to see the writing on the wall, that there are people who are firmly of the belief that nothing lasts forever and that including jobs and that, and I guess there's people that believe that some institutions are, have a shelf life and that. I saw so many reactions this week when the announcement was made that said it was, I'm surprised MTV News is even still around, or people who really hadn't been paying attention. Oliver Darcy said the other day that he was a shell of his former self. I don't disagree with that, but that's not, I don't think that's any fault of the people who were still there. They were still doing as good a work as they could, given the resources and the commitment, which had diminished so much over time to the news department. And it was clearly just not a priority from, I can't put it, because I haven't, honestly, I haven't followed it that closely. And I feel like the only time MTV News would appear on my radar is if it was a VMA pre-show or maybe some special thing that they had going with. I remember a Sway with Obama or something like that. Great stuff, still. Yeah, it does feel like Sway sort of kept the flame burning almost single-handedly for a bunch of years. A hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. The guy is fantastic and a giant. And when Sway Calloway would say to me that I inspired him to do what he did, I'm like, dude, like that's mind-bending to me because he's an absolute legend in, in, in hip-hop and beyond. Your question was to see its relevance fade. I noticed it, but I... To me, it was a little bit of a chicken or egg thing. It was MTV making it less... Was MTV making, willingly making the news department and our programming less relevant by stripping away what we did and having diminishing the number of, of special programs that we did that we tended the hour went away. I don't remember what year that went away, but I think it was the late 90s or the early 2000s. You know, uh, 
We continue to have new segments on TRL, so that kept a little bit of a profile. But look, it is a youth culture network. So for me to just hang around like the last guest of the party who won't leave, is it, maybe that was unseemly. Maybe some people found it a little bit cringe, to use a very 2020s word. If my <clears throat> legacy is the delusional Peter Pan of MTV News, so be it. So be it. Many of my former colleagues have gone on to great things in different areas. Tabitha is a visual artist and he does great stuff. Allison's on NPR. Gideon's a kick-ass writer in, in LA and and then Sway is Sway. A giant. I guess why this current restructuring necessitated just simply amputating MTV News, I don't quite understand. I got to tell you, and I read portions of Chris McCarthy's statement. I don't really get it. Are there other big moments that we didn't talk about for you? I got to tell you, I think it was around 04 in Cambridge, Massachusetts, on the steps of a courthouse at midnight when they began issuing same-sex marriage licenses to same-sex couples for the first time in U.S. history. Something I never thought I would see and being able to be there and report on it and knowing that we had, with our our political and sociopolitical coverage over the years, we had gone so many places with a young audience that the people hadn't gone before in a real honest and frank way, from gun violence to sexual health to sexual identity to... And man, it's like stuff that's still with us so much, if not even more so today. And that's our show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Movies, TV shows, books, podcasts, and more. It's what women binge with Melissa Joan Hart and her friend Amanda Lee. We have Lauren Bosworth with us. Yay! The Hills. So what is like your number one question from fans? The primary question I still get asked was, what, is it real? <laughs> In 2024, to me, is a surprising question to get because I feel like everybody has been through the reality TV gauntlet at this point. What women binge wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone, as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen.